This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For nearly all of us in America, our primary relationship with the healthcare system starts with insurance. Insurance companies intermediate between their clients and every doctor that they will see. But if insurance, by definition, is intended to protect us from the unknown or unexpected, why would healthcare users use insurance to access their primary care doctor? What is the risk when patients receive routine examinations and procedures? Consider, if you will, what healthcare might look like if clients contracted directly with their primary care doctor and employed insurance only when the unexpected or severe conditions arose. Direct primary care is just such a model. Could direct primary care be an Uber-like disruptor to the current insurance-centered model? Or is it destined to be overlooked by an American system convinced that all healthcare must start with insurance? My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Gold, principal of Gold Direct Care in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Dr. Gold's clients contract directly with his practice to receive all primary care services for a monthly subscription fee. Dr. Gold will share with us how his relationship to his patients is different from the insurance-centered model and what impact direct primary care could have on our system were it to be widely embraced. Dr. Gold is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a medical degree from University of Massachusetts Medical School. My co-host today is Josh Archambault, Senior Healthcare Fellow at Pioneer Institute. Josh will share his research on how direct care is changing the face of healthcare and what impact it will have on cost, quality, and convenience. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me. Josh, I know your research often looks to innovation in the healthcare system that serves to make people healthier, and also disruptions that can make the system cheaper. In your view, does direct primary care deserve to take its place among other disruptive technologies that we've discussed here on Hubwonk in the past? There are a few out there, and Joe, we've been able to talk about telehealth or whether it's 3D printing of prosthetics, but the discussion we're going to have today, I'm actually really looking forward to because I think direct healthcare or direct primary care as one example is really a new outside-the-box way of delivering care that can be both more pro-patient and more pro-provider. So what are uh, two aspects of the concept of direct primary care? Uh, that you want to ask uh, Dr. Gold about or, or that concern you? You know, I think I'd like to learn how, how does an individual set up one of these practices and how, does, how do patients actually experience them? That, that's the thing that intrigues me the most. I think one of the challenges for direct primary care is looking at scalability. Are there enough of them in the system to be able to treat uh, the amount of uh, healthcare needs that we have? All right. Well, good questions indeed. So, When we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Gold of the Gold Direct Care. Okay, we are back with Pioneer Institute's Josh Archambault and our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Gold. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Jeff. Just explain the term for our listeners who don't know. What is direct primary care? Uh, basically, you know, there's, there's, there's really no one direct primary, you know, the, the direct primary care practice across the country, even the ones that are in Massachusetts, none of us really practice 
exactly the same, which makes it pretty cool. Um, everybody has their own unique kind of pricing and how what they do and what they don't do. But the but the general definition is really the elimination of third party payers and direct contracting with uh, you know it's a very novel concept. Uh, directly contracting for the per- with the person who's your customer, in this case, patient, and the patient paying you directly for the care that you're providing. Um, you know, it's amazing to me that this is so novel, given that every other service industry we have in this country is direct contracting. Um, you just pay the person who's serving you and don't go through a middleman um, unless it's truly needed. So, um, it's really that simple. Um, you know, some people like me do a membership model where it's a you know flat monthly fee that includes all care. Other people will do you know more of a fee for service model, but just you know cash based fee for service type things. Some people do a combination of both. Um, but it's it's really cool and innovative because it's simple. It, indeed, it sounds simple. Um, but I'm curious, uh, does, what role does insurance play in, in this situation? Um, I, I'm going to use a crude analogy and say, I pay for my general repairs for my car, um, myself out of pocket, out of cash. Um, but if I get in a wreck, uh, you know, if something bad happens, I want to have an insurance company uh, share my risk. Do your patients also have insurance? And, and where does that kick in? Where, where is the line? Sure. Um you know, I think what you did is actually just give a definition of how insurance is supposed to work. Um, you know, the reason most car insurance policies are reasonably affordable is because we don't use it as a form of payment uh, with a, as a credit card that has, you know, a 3,000% finance rate on it. Um, you, you know, we, we use insurance in, in healthcare extremely incorrectly. Um, we use it actually the total opposite of how we should use it. Um, you know, we can get into this further, but when you look at, you know, the 12 or I think it's 12, Josh, you can correct me on this, but I think it's the 12 max or the minimal essential requirements that the ACA uh, mandated be, you know, in these fully insured plans. Um, we're actually covering the stuff that's affordable, um, but we're exposing people to the expensive stuff through deductibles, co-insurance, um, higher co-pays. Um, so it's actually completely upside down um, in terms of how people view what health insurance is. And sadly, to get back to your analogy, you know, people don't equate car care with car insurance. Um, unfortunately, in healthcare, we, through a lot of propaganda, a lot of brainwashing, have made people believe that having a card in your wallet equates and and allows you to get good affordable care. Um, and we're actually finding that by using insurance the way we do, the cost of kit, the cost of care has become you know, astronomical and we've made primary care, which really should be the complete opposite of the definition of insurance, meaning predictable, affordable, accessible, and encouraged. Um, we've made it expensive by using third-party payers to pay for it. Now, speaking of expensive, um, young, healthy people, I'm sure embrace this model. As we get older, the likelihood we're going to need more care, perhaps more expensive care increases. Uh, Medicaid, uh, Medicare is a very expensive uh, uh, cost to all of us. Um, how does that work in your practice? What, do, you, do you accept um, uh, patients or, I guess, clients above uh, uh, who are eligible for Medicare? 
Sure. I mean, I think the simple kind of wording that I've decided to use, especially in Massachusetts, which, you know, is a very, what I call a highly insurance addicted uh, state is we're insurance blind. Um, I don't, I don't care what type of insurance you have, or if you don't have insurance, I will take care of you. Um, Obviously, ethically, unfortunately, legally in the state of Massachusetts, it's a mandate that people have Obamacare approved insurance, um, which, you know, look, we, we're not anti-insurance. I'm just anti-insurance practicing medicine and covering dumb things that are affordable. Um, you know, there is a huge part of the healthcare system that is expensive and is unpredictable. Um, no one wants to be rushed into an ICU, you know, struggling to breathe from COVID or any other thing and have to worry about what this is going to cost. That's an insurable event. And that's what insurance should be used for, just like a tree falling through your car or through your home. We have people who come in with no insurance, um, whether it's because they fall in the gap where they make too much money to qualify for subsidies, but not enough that they can go spend you know, $500 a month to carry a $3,000, $6,000 deductible health plan. Whatever their reason is for choosing not to have insurance, um, we, we do work with health insurance agents who we know and trust, who we vetted pretty well, who understand what direct primary care is and how it works. And we actually advise these new patients to meet with our insurance people because I'm not going to fix your broken femur. I'm not going to remove your brain tumor. Um, I'm not going to do open heart surgery. Uh, Those are the things that, you know, we need insurance for. And I want people protected morally and ethically. It's, It's the right thing to do. So we actually, if they refuse to even meet, you know, with our agent, we have them sign a waiver that they understand, like, we're not offering insurance. Um, There is no financial transfer of risk. The only financial transfer of risk for me is if I don't have people sign up and and pay me directly. I don't need millions of dollars in reserves to, because I'm not charging an average of $80 a month and doing knee replacements. Um, you know, we're providing medical care. We're providing longitudinal, um, accessible, affordable, transparent, which is a word very much missing um, in the healthcare industry. We're providing that. And I think the other thing we're doing is we're really advocating for patients to help navigate, help them navigate this labyrinthine system that is so overly and unnecessarily complex that even the doctors don't understand how it works half the time. But uh, I want to bring Josh into the conversation because I think you're touching on many of the themes his research advocates. Uh, um, Josh, in, in listening to uh, Jeff talk about his model, um, does that speak to your observations of uh, problems with the system and potential solutions? Uh, what questions or concerns do you have for Jeff? Yeah, you know, I think I'm intrigued, Jeff, by the structure of direct care, primary care, because it addresses so many of the issues that uh, we hear so much about in healthcare: high costs, uh, uncoordinated care, poor management of diseases, provider burnout, access issues. I could go on and on. We only have so much time here. But I'd be curious a little bit about to hear what does this practically look like for your patients? How do you think about pricing your contracts, your direct contracting with folks, what, what if you have pay, a lot of sick patients that show up or not? How, how do you think about pricing? Well, you know, I think for tr- to be truthful, I think that was the hardest part um, opening 
you know, is figuring out, you know, obviously I'm well aware of what insurance costs are. Um, I know people, you know, whether they have employer based insurance, which is a whole nother ball game to tackle, um, you know, whether they have that or not, I, I know that people are, are spending a lot of money. And the last thing I wanted to do was charge something that was going to break their bank even further. Um, part of the reason I did not choose concierge medicine, which a lot of people unfortunately equate what we do in direct primary care to concierge. Um, the big difference is they're charging a retainer fee, but they're also still billing insurance. So any deductible or copay is going to apply and they're going to want you to come into the office so they can bill insurance and, and have two streams of revenue. I don't begrudge anybody doing it. Um, it's certainly better than what the system's offering if you can afford it. But what we really want to do is we want to tr try to provide transparent, affordable care. So when I looked at, you know, obviously my overhead, where I'm located is certainly a lot different than some of my colleagues in other areas of the country. Um, the typical, you know, direct primary care practice takes about six, anywhere from 600 to 1,000 patients, depending on um, where they're located and what their overhead costs are, which usually are significantly lower than a typical insurance-based practice. But um, so what I tried to do is I figured, you know, look, age is, you know, pretty much the standard thing that we can go by that obviously as people age, as, um, as you said, they're going to need more care, more touch points, more services. So I, I do age-based tiers where it's a little bit higher, you know, the older you get. Um, but again, it's less than most people's cable bill. Um, you know, so, and we do sliding scale, you know, for people who I know are struggling, um, you know, some people we do charity care for, if I think it's appropriate, uh, during the COVID pandemic, um, I offered a $35 a month telehealth option, you know, for people who are losing jobs and losing insurance to at least have a touch point, you know, to the healthcare system with somebody that would advocate for them. So we're talking about, in most cases, less than a cable bill or a cell phone yep. bill. It's an average about 80 bucks a month. 70, 70, if you look across the country, it's an average of about 65 to $80 a month per person. But we do, you know, like some family discounts and all that type of stuff. But the beauty of it is by opting out, you know, of Medicare and Medicaid, um, I can actually do charity care. You know, if I feel uh, any insurance-based practice, if, if, if they're contracted with Medicaid, which most of them are, they cannot not bill Medicaid. And if they have someone who comes in uninsured, they can't take care of them for free. They have to charge them. It's against the law. We can do whatever we want. I have patients from my old practice that are, you know, over 85 years old that I know are living, you know, social security check to social security check. And instead of them having to transition to a new physician, I decided, come with me. I'll take care of you. It's been nine years. I'm not going to abandon you to another physician um, because you can't afford, you know, 125 bucks a month. Yeah. And I think what's interesting knowing Jeff a little bit is just his experience. He's had experience working in larger health systems and ma making this transition to direct primary care. Jeff, I'd be curious, you, you focus on primary care in your practice. So how, how does this work? You're in Marblehead, Massachusetts. How do you help your patients navigate the healthcare system? Do you have direct relationships with others if they need specialist care? How, how does that process actually work if somebody has exceeded and I know the research shows that most direct primary care doctors can do probably about 80% of what most patients need on any given year. So you're, you're able to do a bulk of it for quite a, a good deal. 
Um, right. But what happens when somebody exceeds that from a health perspective? Right. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the issues to just backtrack a little bit is I think, unfortunately, in the area that we're in, um, the system has prevented, presented a very perverse idea of what primary care actually is. Um, being in such a specialized area, you know, with all the big teaching hospitals, um, I think, unfortunately, you know, 10 minute visits showing the consumer that this is what primary care is, is not real primary care. Um, the, the way that most of us are trained, um, we're never allowed in the insurance-based model to practice to the extent of our ability and the extent of, extent of our training. I became what I call a referralist. Everything was basically like, oh, you got wrist pain, go see the wrist person. Um, did I know how to do a wrist exam? Of course I did, but I didn't have you know, a half hour to an hour to deal with all the other issues that I wish I could deal with. And that's why I got frustrated and said, this isn't medicine, this is paperwork and insurance referrals. And for me, you know, I feel like my ability to reduce specialty referrals and downstream costs has been huge for a few reasons. Number one, this model allows primary care doctors to have time with people. And when you have time with people, most people just want to be heard. And if you have time to actually sit and listen and keep your mouth shut, you'll actually get the diagnosis 90% of the time without even putting a hand on them. The second thing, so we've reduced a lot of referrals that way, with that way by me being able to treat more chronic disease, more acute you know, medical issues that are more severe than your typical sore throat UTI that unfortunately the public thinks is all we can do. Um, you know, I know how to manage coronary disease and CHF and COPD and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, so I think that the other way is we use certain, you know, online tools that are included in the membership where we have some online curbside specialty consult, consult services that we use um, that really have also been extremely educational for me, extremely helpful, reducing people from going to specialists that are not necessary. Um, you don't need to see an endocrinologist every six months if you're hypothyroid and your level has been stable for five years. Um, it's not necessary. Um, primary care docs can do that very easily with a, you know getting a thyroid lab test for five dollars. Um, so and doing telehealth, you know, I mean, being able to talk to the patient like this and say, hey, you know, let's review your thyroid symptoms. How are you doing? Have you gained weight? You know, you're tired. Let you know. And, you know, you don't have to examine everybody unless it's medically appropriate. Um, but I think, you know, the hard part about being in the Boston area is that most of the specialists and radiology center, every, everything's owned by the hospital systems. So the ability to, I mean, I could tell you horror stories about uninsured patients that I've diagnosed with cancer, that the oncologist was more than willing to at least see the patient in consult um, and accept, a, you know, an affordable cash rate but we're told they couldn't see the patient because the system said you're the patient's not insured. We can't see him. Mm. Yeah. And I'm going to hand it back to Joe here in a second. I think this actually ties it to some current debates happening in Massachusetts. The state Senate actually was debating a telehealth bill the other day. And one of the areas of controversy was whether insurance was going to have to pay for emails between providers and patients. And what I'm hearing you saying is that's not even a conversation in my practice. It's, You've paid, you've paid your membership. I'm going to communicate with you in the appropriate way to be able to get you the care that you need and not Zero. just debate about what's I mean, paying for what and when. Just, just when you get a chance, like sometimes you have to actually listen to what you're saying. 
and play it back and listen to the insanity of that statement that we have legislators wasting time and money on whether insurance should pay for a freaking email. Yeah, it, it, it is, uh, brings the complexity of healthcare to a whole nother level. I, I did wanna, as I'm handing it back to Joe here, talk a little bit about this pandemic. Um, how have you been able to offer services to your patients? You know, something that I have, um, we've talked a little bit about on this podcast before, in which a large swaths of the healthcare system were largely just shut down as we, there were concerns about capacity. What does that look like in your model? Uh, didn't happen. You know, I mean, really that simple. We, the only reason I was, you know, shut down and out of the office for two weeks is because we had the first patient in Essex County that was positive um, and was asymptomatic five, you know, five days before he got, te- had five days before he got diagnosed, he was here getting blood work done with no symptoms. And my medical assistant, who's my one of my only two staff members, and I started spiking fevers a week later and had to go on quarantine. Um, turned out we were negative, but I was still working from home, doing phone calls, doing emails, um, doing televisits if needed, uh, doing Facebook live videos to help educate the community about what was going on with Corona. I mean, the media from both sides of the aisle is a nightmare. Um, people are so confused and so lost and don't know who to listen to. And it's sad that literally you read Facebook groups from towns and this is where people are having discussions about medical advice. Um, when there's nothing crazy about what direct primary care does, we actually just provide primary care the way it used to be where, you know, you did need a specialist. You didn't post on Facebook. Who do people go to? You called your primary care doctor and you said, Hey, you know, I blew my ACL out. Who do you recommend I go see for ortho? you know, for knee that doesn't exist anymore. We're almost like pathetically like the last resort because people don't want to be on the phone for 30 minutes. But other than me being on quarantine, the only other thing we did that changed was we pushed, you know, our well child checks and our adult like routine physicals back a little bit just to keep, you know, foot traffic out and comply, you know, with, with the state guidance. But I was doing telehealth Um, I did stitches, you know, if people needed stitches, you know, and it was something, you know, that I could take care of. It was like, come down. Um, We even had one kid that was a little overdue for their shots that my medical assistant masked and gowned up and went and gave the shots in the back of the car. Um, You're not going to see that in the system. Like it just doesn't, it, they literally were shut down. And I know, as you mentioned at the beginning about a lot of the, you know, the primary care practices that are independent struggling, you know, and either in a lot across the country or even closing, um, you know, so we get the argument that we're worsening the shortage of primary care docs, but a closed office with three to 4,000 patients is a lot worse than me taking care of seven, 800, you know, um, and I look the hospital around here, as you know, most primary care physicians are working for employed, you know, major hospital systems. They consistently operated a loss anyway. I worked for one of them. You know, the way they generate revenue is by referring people into the system, you know, for the expensive imaging, consultations, surgery, hospital stays. They'll be fine. You know, they'll open up and the and the public will continue to go feed from the trough um, as they've done. But the independent docs that, you know, were that were taking insurance really, really took a hit because the only way they could get paid is by seeing people. So when you can't file a claim, 
because you don't see people. And then you have to have, as you just mentioned, a bunch of, you know, discussions about how to reimburse for a tele- telephone call. You know, what are they going to get per call? When are they going to get paid? They have bills to pay. They have lights to keep on, families to, you know, take care of. And it just doesn't work. So, Jeff, I want to develop that idea because I think we've really addressed it. I mean, really the shockingly perverse incentives in the traditional system. I'm not, uh, you, you characterize it as a trough and, uh, you know, perhaps it deserves that title. I want to focus uh, for our listeners who are excited perhaps by the uh, cost savings, but more interested in the actual experience of the, of the relationship with a doctor. I said in our intro, uh, the, the client does have a relationship with you, the doctor, rather than some insurance company. That provides you with the opportunity to have some longitudinal uh, relationships. Share with our listeners uh, perhaps an example of where the benefit that you, by spending a little more time with a patient, by understanding their history, and being able to identify a condition that might have been lost in you know, when if that same person had been in the quote unquote system that that really you know is either too busy or, or too narrowly focused to have understood what was really wrong. How many relationships do you know? Um, whether it's you know your partner, your girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, husband, where a third party really helps things out, doesn't usually work that well. Um, and usually deteriorates the relationship. And I think what this model allows us to do is do exactly that, which is build a relationship. You know, when you go to a surgeon, you you want, if if your surgeon, if he or she has a great bedside manner and is touchy-feely, it's a great, great asset to have. But when it really comes down to it, you want to get off the table, you want your problem fixed, and you never want to see that doctor again unless you really need to. Um, as Dr. Fernanda Poulet from Iora Health always says, you know, that's transaction medicine and that's what it should be. And that's why insurance should help with those things. But primary care is really relationship-based medicine. And, you know, when you build that level of trust where the patient trusts you, you know, and your knowledge base, but also trusts you to admit when you don't know something and something is out of the scope of your care that you're going to get them to the right place or look up the right solution, that's where the magic is. And that's why I think it's really hard to quantify through ridiculous metrics um, about the value of primary care in the relationship. And just to give you an example, like I know my patients' personalities. I know, you know, who are the anxious Nellies that, you know, are not going to, you know, be satisfied on a weekend if I don't just pop in the office and take a look at their kid or do a FaceTime visit or whatever you know, versus who are the, who are the people that I can say, Hey, you know, do this over the weekend or do this tonight, touch base with me tomorrow and let me know how things go. And they're going to be totally calm, cool, and collected, you know, with it, you start knowing, you know, just like in your personal relationships, you know, when to pick a fight and you know, when to shut your mouth and walk away and just say, yep, honey, you're right. Right. When you live with someone for that long and you work with someone for that long, you really start to know the ins and outs of how they tick and you actually learn more and more about them. And for a lot of the patients I have that do have, you know, bad medical anxiety or very nervous by working with them and being there for them, a lot of that, they, they don't even see it. They're not even aware of it, but it dissipates. So if I can prevent those people from unnecessarily going or an urgent care or an ER over the weekend when they don't need to be there, um, 
by a simple 10 minute phone call. I mean, I'm basically working for the system for free. Well, um, so that was a great answer. I, I, I want to take the conversation just because we're getting close to the end of our show. I just want to take a step back and talk about more practical things. Uh, you're on the North Shore. You're in Marblehead. Um, how prevalent are practices like yours across Massachusetts for our listeners? Um, and, you know, is there a, a directory of, of, of your services or uh, services like yours that they can go to after listening to the show? Sure. I mean, I think since I opened in February 15, um, you know, I think there's about 15 other docs now in Mass. Um, most of them are kind of around the kind of south of Boston or Metro West. Um, there is one great practice, a husband and wife out in Gardner, Mass, which, you know, is a very underserved area. And they've opened a couple of years ago and are doing really well for their local population. Um, I think as far as Northern go, I think I'm, I think my female partner, Dr. Man, Man, Carmela Mancini and I are probably the furthest North. Um, you know, again, this is not easy. Like, I'm just going to sit here and say like getting out of the system or doing this out of residency is not easy. Um, especially in a very highly regulated state like Massachusetts with CON laws, we can't dispense, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that make it very, very hard to do this model in Massachusetts. Um, you know, 28 other states or so have DPC legislation, you know, protecting DPC practices from insurance regulation. Uh, we don't have that in mass and I certainly don't see it happening, you know, in the next 10 years. For patients, really dpcfrontier.com has a great mapper on there um, that really, you know, again, shows people who's closest in their community. But what I again try to stress is, you know, we utilize telehealth so much that, you know, I have patients that are in California. I have patients down in New York City. Um, you know, I have people all over the place that I can still guide them and, you know, provide a lot of telehealth. I mean, there's people on the North Shore who have no problem schlepping into Boston for their primary care doc. Um, but, you know, yeah, as Marvel had a little further out there, but it's it's beautiful, you know, just drive up here on off hours for the two or three times a year that you may have to come up here. But I do get, you know, that the geography is important. Like if there's an after hours issue and, you know, it's something like stitches or, you know, something that you can't really certainly do through telehealth or where telehealth isn't appropriate, it can be a barrier. But in that case, you know, I say, hey, look, you know, I'll call over the urgent care center in your area, go tell them what's going on and, and get you in there and, you know, still take care of people. I mean, it's amazing that we can, you know, stream movies to our phone and we've been doing it for a while, but we still can't deliver healthcare the right way. Well, I, uh, th that was a great answer. It hadn't occurred to me that of course your reliance on technology telehealth uh, allows people to reach you from, you know, wherever they want to reach you, which brings right. me to my final question is, uh, here's your opportunity to, uh, you know, you've, you've made a good case for direct primary care. How do our listeners reach you and your practice? Um, and, um, you know, perhaps I guess, interview you about uh, perhaps becoming, uh, uh, developing a relationship. Sure. Um, I mean, I think that just a couple things I want to add real quick, too, is I, with the technology, what I always say is I think I use it to enhance the relationship, not replace it. It's very different when you're talking to somebody on the, on the other end of the phone or video that you know versus someone you don't know. And second of all, like, I really advocate for primary care in general. Um, I mean, as Josh knows, we spend about seven cents on the dollar on primary care versus specialty and hospital care. And, you know, the analogy I always use is, would you, 
build a new mansion on a foundation that costs seven cents. You wouldn't, you know, what we do is not sexy. We're not doing a lot of crazy procedures and stuff, but without the foundation of primary care, you know, it, it just, the system is falling apart and it's because we have not invested in the foundation. And that's for all my colleagues, whether they're DPC or non-DPC. Um, so I just wanted to say that too. I mean, I'm a big primary care advocate in general. Um, and, you know, lastly, you know, we also work with a lot of self-insured employers. Um, you know, we can, you know, we work with benefits advisors that can build DPC right in, you know, as an option for the employees and we don't file claims. So, I mean, we've seen 10, anywhere from 10 to 30% savings, um, both on health insurance and health care costs for companies. I mean, we work with a company that's only about 30 employees that's on a level funded plan and they got $20,000 back this year. Um, you know, for, for a company like that, 20 grand is, is a good amount of dough. Um, their employees are all hardworking. They have a maximum out of pocket for the employee of a thousand a year, which is unheard of. Um, and their rate only went up 4% this year. Um, those numbers don't lie. The numbers are there to support this, whether people like that or not. But so those are just the last things I want to touch on, but, you know, I'm happy to, we do a free consultation. Uh, people can email me directly, uh, Dr. Gold, D-R-G-O-L-D at golddirectcare.com. Our website is www.golddirectcare.com. You know, like I said, we, we try to help people both from the care perspective and the coverage perspective. They're both equally important. We've just got to do it better and it doesn't have to be complicated. The reason I think a lot of people find this complicated is because ironically, it's very simple and they think there's a catch and there's not. Um, if I don't do my job and I don't take good care of people, they leave and I go out of business. So I have the moral you know, oath I took to do the best thing I can for people, but I'm also a small business owner trying to survive and put my kids through school and you know, pay my bills. And you know, for me, that's incentive enough to do the right thing as well. Well, that's a, a wonderful uh, framing of, of, of direct primary care. Uh, we all play a role here. You're providing wonderful service for a, a, a good price. Um, I'm bringing attention to the, the cause. Uh, we've got Josh here to uh, knock on doors on Beacon Hill and appeal to those people who are making policy to make uh, what you offer uh, a little easier to offer. So, well, yeah. Uh, I, and the last, sorry to interrupt, but the last thing I say all the time is, you know, we've waited for about how many decades now for Washington, D.C. And, and Beacon Hill and other state capitals to fix this. This is really up. I say this all the time. This is really up to us. I mean, we're, we're all patients. We're, you know, we're all going to be part of the system. And until people speak up, I mean, to me, this is actually, you know, and I'm sure people will laugh at me, but this is a social justice issue. Indeed. I hope our listeners vote with their feet. I, uh, um, I never promote someone else's business, but I'll say it's there, uh, it's there for them to do. They can vote with their feet and, and knock on doors and other uh, quality primary care providers like you. Thank you very much for being on Hubwonk today, Jeff. Uh, thank you guys for having me. It's always great to talk to Josh and nice to meet you as well, Joe. Okay, we're back. I'm with Josh Archambault from Pioneer Institute. Well, Josh, uh, the 
conversation with Jeff and the concept of direct primary care was very intriguing. It touched on many of the themes you and I have discussed in earlier shows. Uh, what was it that stood out for you in, in, in Jeff's uh, description of both the financial or cost benefits and also the service benefits of direct primary care? Yeah, I, I think what's so interesting, Joe, about the model is that it so directly addresses so many of the ills that have been listed in headline after headline or in legislative hearing after legislative hearing of the problems and the bad incentives that we see in the healthcare system are dealt with. And it seems to be an experience that leads to uh, a more happy experience or a more pleasant experience for both the patient and the provider. And there's a growing body of evidence and research out there uh, documenting what's happening here. So there's about 1,300 or so direct primary care practices around the country. You know, from previous conversations that I've had with Dr. Gold, he shared a handful of kind of real life experiences, which I think are very telling about the power of this model. You know, he shared an example relatively recently about a patient he had that needed a nuclear stress test. And so that individual called around and if they had gone through their uh, insurance would have paid $3,200 out of pocket for that. That would have been their responsibility. But because he was working with Dr. Gold, Dr. Gold had a, a relationship with another center. He, he got it for $1,200 uh, out of pocket. So if you think about the model of having to pay a monthly subscription, you've paid for almost two years of his services just out of that one interaction of having to get that test. And, and I think that is just one of many, many stories that I've personally heard from direct primary care doctors all over the country. What, what uh, burned through for me as well was uh, the idea that you have a relationship with a doctor, right? You know, think of how much uh, either surplus care or uh, misallocated care we could avoid if we could at any time pick up the phone and engage with uh, our doctor who knows us and knows our history. So I think this is a very valuable show. I hope our listeners um, uh, enjoyed learning perhaps something they were unfamiliar with, direct primary care. So thank you very much for joining me for this episode of Hubwonk. I appreciate uh, your frequent guest support. Thanks. This has been an episode of Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like to support us, there are three ways you can do so. You can give us a five-star rating, you can leave a review, and of course, you can share it with your friends. Hubonk is a production of Pioneer Institute. If you want to reach me directly with comments or suggestions for future shows, I can be reached at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please tune in next week for another edition of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.